Hey, good morning. Hey, if you're new, I'm Charlie, lead pastor here. If you're here in the room or you're here online, really glad that you're joining us, especially if you are new. Um, a couple of housekeeping things before we get going. One, Woo Pig, uh, I got to start there. I think my wife inst- just kind of in- instinctually knew to not lay me out a nice dress shirt for today like she normally does on Saturday night. She just, she just knew that I was going to pick this shirt regardless of what she laid out. Uh, it was a good day yesterday. Um, also, I should let you know this, our family is headed to Disney World soon. And uh, we've kind of been neck deep in the planning of that. If you, if you don't know this about me, if you haven't been around or... Uh, our family really like Disney World. We try to go every couple of years. It's been a while, just, you know, with COVID and some other things. We haven't been in a while, so we're all really excited. And normally, like in my in my normal life, I'm not like a, I'm not like a planner. I'm not really detail-oriented. But I discovered, like the first time we went, that if you, if you want to go to Disney World and, and you want to have a good experience, you've got to have, like, this massive plan, like this strategy in order to do it. Because otherwise, you're going to be one of these people who just randomly walks into three-hour lines and things, and you're going to have a terrible experience, be there all day, only ride a couple of things, be miserable, your kids are screaming, it's bad. Or you can have this really elaborate strategy, which I have, and you can just dominate. I'm real competitive, and so I, I think of it in terms of there were 10,000 people in the park today, and I dominated all of them like I won, like I won right? And so I get, I get really hyped, but there's a lot of things about it you can't control. Like, like, like our very first morning, the, the park was really early. We got to get there, but you got to be one of the first people there to get to this ride that gets really long. But what if our bus doesn't come? So, like, I'm just sitting there thinking, like, what if our bus doesn't get there when it needs to? And I, my my brain starts thinking about this, and then the, the strategy is going to be ruined. And then we have to wait in lines longer. And then my brain starts to do this. Now everybody's disappointed in me. I mean, like, like my wife's disappointed in me. Like I told them we had this great plan. The plan's not working. My kids aren't having a good time. My wife's not good. They're, they're all disappointed in me because I'm, I'm failing them. This is what my brain starts to tell me. It's like now everybody's, now everybody's disappointed. We came all this way, and I've disappointed everybody. And in the past, it has not mattered how many times my wife kind of puts her arm, her hand on my arm, and just kind of pats it and says, you know you're the only one that's disappointed, Right? We're all just glad to be here, and we trust you, and we're really glad you're here, and we know that you had a great plan, and the things that have happened, they're not your fault, and we're just happy to be here. We're just cool just to be able to see the castle, and we've gotten to ride some things already today, and it's been great, and we're having fun. Like, <laughs> no matter how many times you say, I just, I just can't, I, I, just, I just can't. I like, it's like, this, I've, I'm, I'm disappointing everybody. But the more I've thought about it, and the more I'm just kind of allowing Heidi in advance to kind of keep telling me these same things, the more I've really come to realize that I really am. I'm, I'm imagining them being disappointed in me when, in fact, I, I am disappointed in me, and I'm putting it on them. Now, before we get too just deep in the psychoanalysis here, right, like I, I, the, the, the reason I bring all this up is because I think when we think about our relationship with God, we imagine because of failures, because of brokenness, because of sinfulness, we imagine that God is really disappointed in us. God's really angry with me. He's disappointed in me. He's frustrated with me. He's, he's, he's all these things with me. When in reality, you're putting all of that on God. And the reality of it is God loves you. And you're his son, you're his daughter, 
and he's glad that you're his. But we imagine, we imagine this God who is just analyzing everything that we do and is determining how much he loves us based on how good a day we had, on how good we were, or how, how many bad things we did, how many good things that we did. And we perceive of God either as angry or really disappointed in us. And, 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 and I'm telling you, it's that idea more than most that I think is really holding us back from experiencing the kind of life that God is wanting us to have with Him. And so what we're going to do for this month, the next four weeks, including today, um, we're going to spend some time in a, passions, a passage in Ephesians 2 where we're going to spend some time just kind of talking about what I think is an incredibly important theological concept. But more than it just being a theological concept, I think it really... I think it really sets the foundation. If we really understand what this is, this, this, the, what this, understand this issue, not only will our theology be right, but it really will set this incredible foundation for really living, understanding what it really means to live life with Jesus. Because I think a lot of us, we do. We, we, we imagine God this one way, that, that my relationship with God is completely and totally based on what I do. But we have this in us. If you've come to the Grove or you come to church, you've probably heard me say, you've heard another pastor say, hey, salvation is totally free. It's not based on what you do. And we have that knowledge in there somewhere, that salvation is free. And we, we've, we've, we've at least heard it. Maybe we're trying to believe it or maybe we fully believe, right? But we've got this. Salvation is free. My relationship with God is not based on what I do. But we also have this innate sense, and we understand that there are, there are things that God wants from me. There's a way that God is wanting me to live. There are, I mean, the Bible doesn't have zero commands in it. It has, it has a fairly decent number of commands in it. And it describes the way that you are supposed to live life in a way that honors God, in, in, in a way that shows that we are followers of God. He's like, there's, there seems to be a lot of expectations. And we struggle with, how to put these things together. How do I rest and trust in a relationship with God that is not based on what I do, but at the same time live a life in accordance with what God is calling me to do, what God wants from all of us? How do we put these things together? And this plays out, the, the anxiety about this plays out in a lot of ways, and one of them comes when, when people say, well, you know, I... I, I want to have a relationship with God. I, I, I want to get right with God. I, I, want, I want to trust Jesus. But you got to understand, but first I've got to, there's some things I got to do. There's some things I got to do. You don't understand. I got to get right. I got to clean some things up. I got to fix some things. I'm not, I'm not quite good enough yet. Like, <clears throat> like you don't have, like, like you want to go to the party, but you don't have the right clothes. And I, I've got to work on getting the right clothes first. And then I can be good enough to go to the party. And then once I'm in the party, then, and, and so we imagine obstacles between us, who we are as sinners, and a relationship with God. And these obstacles are things that I need to do. Or you, you come across people who are like, they, they, they hear, and, and at least on some level it sinks in with them that, that a relationship with God is not based on your works. Like, man, relationship with God not based on my works, then I, I can do whatever I want. I, I just, I, well, it means I can, I can just do whatever I want. I can do whatever I want to do. It's free. And both of those ideas are dangerous in their own way 
You believe I've got to be good for God to accept me, or I think that I can live my life however I want. But we've got to put these two ideas together in a better way, where I can fully trust and rest in the fact that God loves me unconditionally, and and I can receive Jesus Christ and the forgiveness that he offers. I can receive that freely without preconditions. And yet, there's some things that God wants from me. And so there's a passage in Ephesians 2 that I think is going to be really helpful for us in kind of setting the foundation for how we can kind of put these two things together. And we're going to spend some time a lot this first week just kind of talking more about that first one, like one full week where we're just, we're just exclusively focusing on this idea of what it means that salvation is free. And then, then, then in, in this passage in Ephesians 2, Paul explains that but then unfolds at the very end of it is like, and here is what your life needs to be like. And he weaves it together in such a beautiful way. That's why we're going to spend the next four weeks kind of just in this passage and trying to put these pieces together. So Ephesians chapter 2, starting in verse 4. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus, in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace, expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. For... We are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. So big picture with this series, we're going to kind of weave what he's saying in here in verses 8 through 10 together, where he says, basically, it's your salvation is not by works, but you're God's handiwork. So you didn't do work. In fact, you are God's work. He, he, you're God's handiwork. And you were created in Christ Jesus to do good works. So you don't have to do works to get salvation. In fact, you're God's work, but he created you. And one of the reasons he did and the reason he saved you is so that you could do good works. He wants you to do good works. But these good works, even the good works that he wants you to do, are things that he's already kind of prepared for you. And we just walk in them. And so then there, there's just kind of this beautiful balance of, of being completely free but then how God kind of sets a path for us to live a life of good works. And so that's kind of where our series is going. But today we're going to focus on that first part to make sure that we really understand that salvation is completely free. So if we go back there to those first couple of verses, verse 4, it says, But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive. Now, if you got, again, if you guys have been around, you know that uh, precision of definitions is really important to me because sometimes we just see these words like mercy, grace, and we just kind of think, oh, that means God's nice. It means God's good. But we don't really get the specific nuance of what these different words mean. And I think for our purposes today, it really does matter. So here it's describing God as being rich in mercy. And we'll define mercy this way. Mercy is when you're in a situation where you deserve to be punished 
but you are not punished. The, someone, someone withholds punishment from you. They are showing mercy. So I am a merciful person if I do not punish people when they deserve to be punished. And so you know, like you'll hear this in courtroom dramas or whatever where the defendant is, is found guilty and he says, I, I, I appeal to the mercy of the court. That is not him saying that he's not guilty or, you know, I, I didn't really do it. No, he's saying, I did it. And I'm asking for mercy, which is I recognize I did the thing and that I deserve the punishment. Will you, out of your own mercy, withhold this punishment from me? So when you don't punish a kid, when you don't retaliate to somebody who is mean to you and you feel like you have the right to be to say something back to them and you withhold that, that's, that's mercy. Any, anytime something it feels like that justice requires me to do something negative, to punish, but I don't, that's mercy. And so what this verse says here in verse 4, it says that God is rich in this. He's like, just imagine his bank account. His mercy checking account is just overflowing with money. He's got all, he's rich. He is so full of mercy that his bank account is just overflowing with it. He is always looking for opportunities for people who, even though what they've done requires or should require punishment, he's always looking for opportunities to show mercy, to withhold punishment. So verse 4, because of his love for us, God, who's just got all the mercy in the world, he made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. He says our sins made us dead and, you know, and then, you know, we, we did this thing. Now we're dead. And we, we could stay dead, but he doesn't want to, he didn't want us to have that punishment. He wants to unload some of that bank account on us. And so he says he takes us dead and made us alive in Christ. It is by grace you have been saved. And there's an image here that I think that is really, really important. It's not the only place you see it. You see it a couple of times if you read all of Ephesians 2. And you'll see it all throughout the New Testament, really. This imagery of being dead in your sins. And he's, what he's saying here is because of your sins, you're, you're dead. You're dead. Your, your sins have caused, a, not only have they caused a rift between you and God, but you are now, because of your sin, because of the things that you've done, you are now spiritually dead. So this makes a whole lot of sense that Paul would use this type of imagery in a passage where he's trying to help us understand, do I have to work to earn, my, earn God's favor? Do I have to work to earn salvation? And so in a passage where he's talking about this, he says, you need to understand you're, you're dead because of sins. And so the reason why that's important, we'll say it this way. If we're trying to answer the question, do I have to work to earn God's favor? Do I have to work to earn salvation? We'll say it this way. Dead people, dead people don't do work. I mean, let's just, I mean, let's just, I mean, let's just kind of write that. I mean, that's, that, that, seems, that seems normal. I mean, that's, that, that's not... That's not over. That's not. That's not overwhelming. That's, that's a concept. I think we can all understand. If you're dead, you can't do anything. And the primary imagery, if you look in the Gospels where Jesus is talking, you look in the letters where people are, uh, the apostles are kind of teaching and reflecting, helping us understand what Jesus really did. And you see, what are the different images 
that are used to describe what happens in salvation. The two primary ones that you will see is resurrection imagery. You were dead and God made you alive. And old things become new. So something was old, God did something, it became new. Um, It used to be dead, God did something, and now it's alive. And I think these two images are important. They're of incredible importance because it helps you understand these are things you can't do. You may be incredibly talented. You may be the most American American there is, right? I can pull myself up by my bootstraps and I can do it and I'm capable and I'm independent and and there's nothing I can't do if I set my mind to it and great for you. But there are two things that you absolutely cannot do. You cannot resurrect something that is dead. Especially if you're the one that's dead. Like even if you were alive, you couldn't resurrect something that's dead. But if you're the one that's dead, okay, dead person, bring yourself back to life. I mean, you'll be waiting a long time. And, 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 and there's nothing you can do. You can't do it. And, and you can't take something old and make it new. It's like, no, 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 no. I'm a garage sailor. I'm a thrifter. You don't understand. And my, I do understand because my wife is a garage sailor and a thrifter. And she's take, bringing home garbage all the time. She's like, hey, look at this garbage I got today. And I'm like, great garbage. And she go, and I'm like, whoa, that, that was actually something, right? And she's like, yeah, I know. It's like new. No, no, no. Okay. That's amazing what she does where she buys a dollar's worth of garbage and turns it into hundreds of dollars worth of cool stuff. It's great. But that's not making something new making something like new. It's cleaning, and there's some cleaning imagery in Scripture. But to take something that's old and make it new, it used to be 100 years old, beep, bop, boop, now it's not 100 years old. No matter how clean you make it, it's still old. Making something old and turning it into something new, that's what God does. Taking someone who is dead and making them alive, that's what, that's what God does. And so your involvement in that, it's impossible because you're dead. And what God is doing is something that only he can do. And so I think I can explain this. We've got a relatively intelligent group here, right? We all understand that concept. And I think, yeah, okay, if I'm spiritually dead and I'm dead and God's bringing back the dead, I can't do that. I don't think our objection to that is in the logic of it. I think our objection to it is often in the premise. And the premise is, is that your sin has made you dead. And I just don't think, I, don't, I, just, I just don't like that. I don't, I, don't, I don't like it. But the reality of it's real. And again, it's all throughout Scripture. Romans 5 says that you're helpless in sin. It describes you as God's enemies. Your sin has more consequences than I think than we understand. And I think the more we can grasp the reality of our sin is so serious that it just hasn't caused a rift between us and God. It has completely and totally severed the relationship and it's put you in a place where spiritually, as far as what I can do to honor God, what I can do to please God, what I can do to restore God, I'm dead. There isn't anything. It's, it's over. It's done. There's nothing. I'm, I'm out of it. The more that we are willing to hear that and embrace it, two things will happen. One, well, I'll understand the significance of my sin. It's likely a much bigger deal than what you want it to be and what you've believed it to be. 
And secondly, the bigger a deal sin is, the bigger a deal what Jesus did for you becomes. Hey, you know, you you and you and God were kind of in a bad way, and Jesus came in and said, "Hey, guys, y'all should make up." And they're like, "Oh, we worked out. Hey, good job, Jesus. You're a great. You're a great guy." No, you were dead and helpless and God's enemy, and sin had severed everything between you and God and made you helpless and hopeless. And he he resurrected you when you were dead. That's just a bigger deal. So the more we understand kind of the significance of sin, the, the more we understand the significance of what Jesus did. Okay? And so he continues on, and he uses this phrase at the end of verse 5, it is by grace you have been saved. And we will see that again in the first part of verse 8. For it is by grace you have been saved. So again, there's two words there to make sure that we understand. Grace and mercy are very similar. They're kind of brothers, but they're different ideas. Again, mercy has the idea of I deserved a punishment and I didn't get it. Grace is you get a good thing that you didn't earn. It's like grace contrasts a little bit with a wage or a paycheck. A paycheck is I did something and I got something in exchange for that. I worked. I work one hour, I got one hour's worth of money. Grace is, I didn't do anything, but I got something good anyway. Okay, that's what, that's what, that's what grace is. Again, uh, presents are, are the best example of this, right? You know, it's, you, you, didn't do any, you don't earn anything to earn a present. Now, saved is a really important word too, and it gets used a lot in, in Christian circles. And again, saved in Bible world means the same thing it means everywhere. What does saved mean? It means I was in, a, I was in a, a bad situation and someone rescued me. You save someone from drowning. You save someone from a burning building. Okay, that's what saved means. So again, saved in this context, we're talking about in a spiritual situation, which makes perfectly sense. You know, I was spiritually dead and, and God saved me. He saved me. He rescued me from this thing that I had done. And this is something I had done to myself. My sin, my sin killed me, made me spiritually dead. And he saved me from that. He rescued me from that, which is both a mercy, withholding a punishment. I deserve this punishment. It is, a, it is, it is mercy. And that kind of mercy kind of gets you neutral. But then grace is a lavish gift of this good thing that God has given us. Verse 8, for it is by grace, this, this goodness, this undeserved goodness, that you have been rescued, you've been saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. So Paul, in, in, in two very short verses, says the same thing four times, four different ways. And if you're ever reading something in the Bible... And they, they just keep repeating themselves. They're repeating themselves because they want to make sure you really, really understand. So he's going to say it four different ways. And maybe by the third time you figured it out, right? It is by grace. It is a gift. It is something good that you get that you don't deserve. It's by grace. And this is not from yourselves, which makes sense. That's what grace is. I didn't earn it. It was just given to me. So it's not, obviously, it's not from yourselves. That's two. Three, it is the gift of God. Again, gift and grace really go hand in hand. 
gift is something that is given to you, not because you earned it, but because of the love of the giver. Not by works that no one can boast. So we got a positive, negative, positive, negative. It's like, it's grace, not from you. It's a gift, not by work, not by works. He's putting all of this together so that we will understand this concept. One, dead people don't do work. We understand that. And two, you don't pay for a gift. I mean, these images that Paul is using, I think, can be really clear if we'll just embrace them. If you're spiritually dead, you can't do work. And if someone is offering a gift, you don't pay for a gift. I don't know if this has ever happened to you. Has it ever happened to you where you've gotten someone a gift and they paid you back for it? it? I don't know that it ever happened to me. It happened to me actually fairly recently. It happened to me a couple of months ago where someone was telling me something that they really wanted. They couldn't find it. And I, amongst my many skills, I'm, a very, I'm very skilled at, at Google and searches and finding the thing that you are looking for. So I was, able to, I was able to find this thing they said that they really wanted. So I wanted to get this for them as a gift. You said you really want it. It's only like 10 bucks. And so I, I got it for them, and they were really happy. Oh, I can't believe you got this for me. This is so great, so great, so great. They kept calling me, texting me, telling me how awesome it was. And I swear to you, like two to three weeks later, I got a check in the mail. Again, I'm not trying to process all of what I'm experiencing emotionally with that here with you now. But can you imagine, like, can you imagine, like, that that's just a little weird. This is a little uncomfortable. Like, I don't know what to do. I have not cashed the check. I just, I, I'm just sitting here staring at it. Like, I, I, I just, I, got, I don't know what I'm supposed to, I don't know what I'm supposed to do with this. Because even if it's not intended that way, it's a little bit insulting for someone to give you something. And then you feel like you've got to pay them back. But we do this all the time. Maybe not in, maybe not at birthday or Christmas time. But you know, when you're out to eat with somebody, hey, let me get that for you. Let, let, let me get this. Oh, no, 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 please, no, 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 no. Why are you doing that? Why are you fighting the check in an awkward way that makes the whole table feel uncomfortable? Why do you do that? Because you can't take a gift. We don't like them. I don't like for there to be something that I didn't earn. I like I just I like to imagine like everything that I have I've earned, and there's something there's something uncomfortable about somebody giving us something that we didn't deserve. Like the best of us will say, okay, okay, well, I'll get, I'll get the next one. But to just, to just accept and say, thank you for that, it's really difficult. And so I think, real honestly, I think this is one of the obstacles. So this is one of the obstacles for us in this really important piece of theology. Not just simply that we don't want to admit that our sin is so destructive that it has made us spiritually dead. But there's a significant amount of pride that we have in really believing and understanding that it's a gift. And when something is a gift, it's, it's both directions. You don't pay for it in advance, and you don't pay it back. A gift is a gift. And so then it leaves us with this question, which I think is really important. If it is a gift, like how, how then, like how do I get it? Because we think of it in terms of like, you, okay, God wants to save you. Like, well, how do I, how do I get that? And we think about what we got to do. If there's nothing you can do, how do you get it? Well, again, the passage says it right here. For it is by grace you have been saved 
through faith. And to define faith real quickly, we tend to think of faith in terms of believing ridiculous things, right? As like something that's so out there that you can't really know that it's true, you just believe it anyway. When in reality, faith really has more the idea of a trust. It's not I believe something, it's I believe in something. John 1.12 describes it this way, it says, to as many as received Jesus, to those who believed in his name, not that he had a name, that, he, that you know his name, but I believed in the name. Those are the ones that became children of God. I, I believe in him. I don't believe that Jesus, I don't believe that Jesus came to earth. I believe in the Jesus that came to earth. I don't believe Jesus died on the cross for sins. I believe in that. I believe in it. I trust in it. I trust it. And so ultimately, if this is a gift, and you don't pay for a gift, how do you accept a gift? You freely receive a gift. You just freely receive it. It's just just given. And I use this illustration when I'm talking to people who are wanting to get baptized to make sure that they really understand it. And and I'll use, you know, presents as an example. And sometimes you can use a birthday present, right? You didn't do anything to earn a birthday present. It's like, oh, I mean, I guess maybe you did. You survived a year, right? I survived the whole year. Congratulations, here's your presents. Maybe you did something to earn it, right? But Christmas presents, I mean, that's somebody else's birthday, right? Right? I mean, that's somebody else's birthday. You didn't do anything for that. That is just a free gift, not based on anything that you did. It's just an act of love wrapped beautifully sitting there under the tree. How does it become yours? Well, it becomes yours when you take it. When you just, just take it, it's right there. But we imagine We imagine that I'm here, the tree is there, the present is there, God's there, excited for you to open the present, and we imagine all of these barriers between me. Like, it would be really weird if God were like, or, or, you know, on Christmas morning, your dad was like, well, uh, I want you to open that. First, you got to go clean your room. We got some yard work that needs to be done. Well, it's not a gift then, right? It's a wage. You earned it. But it's also just as weird if you saw the present there, it's got your name on it. It's Christmas. Like, I can't open it yet. I got to go clean up my room. I got to go work in the yard. I mean, here's, here's dad. He's trying to give you the gift. He's excited about it. Here's God. He's trying to give you this gift. And you're trying to say, I got some things I got to do to earn this gift before I can have it. He's like, man, I'm just trying to give this to you. And the more we feel like that there's things I have to do to get it, the more we don't really understand the gift as it's being offered. It's being offered to you as a gift, not as a wage. Your dead can't earn a wage. But God can bring you back to life and can give you a gift. And that's what he wants to do. And then in verse 10, which we'll spend some time talking about over the next few weeks, he says some really cool things. Like, man, this has happened not based on any works that you did, but there are some things that he, there are some things that he wants you to do. But here's the thing that we we say: hey, I, I know I know it's free, but there's not a but in this passage. It's completely free, and and God's work that He's doing in you, it's going to continue, and it's going to manifest in good works that you're going to do. Not but it's not like okay, well, it's free up here, but then you got to pay it back with the good things. Because again, that's just as, it's not a gift. 
And we're going to spend some time, I hope we can understand that actually part of the gift, part of the gift is the life that we get to live now. Part of the gift is being able to walk in good works that God has prepared for us to do, to be able to live a life that God has laid out for us, to not have to be dead, to not have to be helpless, not to be overwhelmed by sin anymore, but to be able to live capital L life with God, doing and being who he's called me to be. That's part of the gift. And we've got some great sermons. Mark, uh, Brad's going to be here next week. Mark's going to be there the week after that, just kind of talking about some of these incredible things about how all of this fits together, but it begins in this moment. Are you understanding that what God is offering you is free? And if you've never just fully just accepted that and taken that gift, I pray that today would be your day where you would open the gift and let it be yours. But if you have received it, I pray that this would be a time of just great worship and reflection for you. And to get out of this mode that somehow we get, that somehow we just forget. We forget that we it was all just for free. It's free out of just the grace and mercy, the rich, overflowing mercy and grace of God. So whether it's for the first time or in remembrance, let's celebrate and worship this incredible gift that He's given us in the death and salvation that comes through Jesus Christ. Let's pray.